Almighty God, the God of heaven and of earth and of all things, the one who spoke in the beginning and it was done. We come into your presence this morning in and through that name which is above all other names, in and through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come not seeking our own glory, but we come to glorify you for the great things that you have done. And we pray this morning that as our eyes are open to your word, that you would speed your word to our minds and to our hearts, that you would unstop our ears, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand, and that we would be changed by your word again on this, the first day of the week. Father, we acknowledge that we have sinned against you, that we are unworthy of forgiveness, but we plead again that you would be gracious to us, undeserving sinners, and that this morning that we would see more of your splendor and your majesty and your glory as revealed in your holy word. Forgive us for the times when we take it for granted, when we don't praise you and bless you for it, Oh Lord, we pray that you would draw us near to you this morning, that you would take away the cares and concerns of our lives and the worries that may be heavy upon our hearts. And may our minds be fixed upon your word, we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jonah chapter 3 this morning, I've decided I'll throw out the three points. I'm not really interested in three points. I'm not sure why that became so common so long ago. I don't normally preach with three points, so this morning there's no points. There is a point though, so please bear with me. So Jonah chapter 3, we have seen in the weeks before how we have worked through the verses from chapter 1 down to chapter 3, and we have seen God's gracious dealing with Jonah throughout those verses. We have seen a prophet who has been raised up for a purpose and one who has run in the other direction and headlong into certain death. We have seen a man who by God's grace has been used to convert several mariners to the living God and then a man who has been thrown into the ocean into certain death and then God has delivered him into the belly of a great fish where we are told he spent three days and three nights. But now we come to Jonah, the obedient preacher. Jonah, the obedient preacher, is my sermon title this morning. And so we come to Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1. And we read, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. This is really a case of deja vu, isn't it? Because if we look back at chapter 1, what do we see? We see the exact same thing being communicated to the prophet of God, Jonah. Chapter 1 and verse 2, we read that God spoke to Jonah and he said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So now we see that Jonah has just been vomited out of the mouth of a great fish. And imagine what state he would have been in. He wouldn't have looked anything like me this morning. He wouldn't have had a nice suit on, a nice cheap suit. But he, he would have been quite horrible. He probably would have stank greatly from being in the stomach of that great fish. 
he would have looked very dishevelled. His hair may have been a mess. He may have lost some hair. He may have had burns on his skin from the things that were in the stomach of that great fish. And now he's been brought to this point. He's been through all of these things, attempting to run away from God. God has delivered him from certain death by drowning in the ocean. Then God prepared a great fish, we are told, that swallowed Jonah. And then he was preserved even in the belly of that great fish. These things are not mere chance or accident, God's word tells us this morning. And so now we look back and we see why God has allowed Jonah to do these things. We see that the whole way through this series of events, God has been allowing Jonah's discipline for a purpose. He actually believed in his own mind, even though he knew something of God, that he could get away with this, that he could go in the other direction and do things his way. But God, who is sovereign over all things, brings him to this point. He doesn't allow him to keep running. He doesn't allow him to die in the ocean. He doesn't allow him to die in the belly of the great fish. No, he brings him to this point. And just as we saw at the beginning, he says, you will do this. Why did he have to do that to Jonah? Because the thing that Jonah had to do was so immense and so enormous, he had to bring him to this point. He had to bring him low and deliver him from certain death to encourage him to forget about his life. You remember that Jonah was a Jew. The religion of the Jews was very polite in Israel. They had things all sorted out. They came in and they did certain things at certain times. There were certain feasts and there were all of the accoutrements that went along with that. He was polite. He ticked all of the boxes to go to a heathen land, a Gentile land, and to proclaim this thing was enormous. So God had to bring him low to the point of death before he would forget about himself. I'm sure Jonah didn't have a degree. I don't think Jonah went to theological college. I don't think Jonah did any of those things. I heard an ad recently on the radio and it was for some Christian so-called organisation, where they quoted from the book of Genesis, and they said that in the beginning God made man perfect. Yes, that is true. And then they said that God wants you to be free from all of your diseases and all of the hardships of life, and he wants to deliver you, and everything will be wonderful. I wonder what Jonah would have thought of that. I know what I think of it. It's a load of rubbish, complete and utter rubbish. Because here Jonah has been brought to this point so that he will submit to God. He now cares nothing about his life. He doesn't care that he looks like a madman that's just been vomited out of a great fish. He cares nothing about it. Because God has brought him to this very point so that he will forget about himself. He'll stop looking at himself and thinking, what are people going to think of me when I go to this great great city, Nineveh, and preach these things that they hate? And you notice that Jonah has to go and preach. I remember a young man who I met at Theological College who was getting married and I said to him, and I was being somewhat sarcastic and I shouldn't have been, but I said, "Uh, does your fiancé preach? 
And he said to me, no, 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 she doesn't. He didn't realise my sarcasm. He said, no, 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 she, she communicates the gospel by a dance. I didn't respond. It's very interesting that God didn't communicate the gospel via his apostles and his prophets by dance or any other way other than preaching. Isn't that incredible? God uses lunatic preachers like Jonah and like myself to proclaim his truth. And so here Jonah is vomited up onto dry land. Now he must go to this great place, Nineveh. And we're told several times throughout the book, if we continue to read it, that this city God declares to be a great city. That it is roughly three days in time to walk from one side of the city to the other. Three days in journey. Certain scholars say that it was roughly 50 or 60 miles. So this isn't just some backwater place that's, as we say in English or Australian uh, way of saying it's a hole. No, it wasn't a hole. It was a great city. God tells us that. And so you can imagine Jonah being in this position before he's gone through anything being told, you will go to these people, you will leave your people whom you are accustomed to, and you will go and tell basically the enemy that I am going to destroy them and that I hate them. Of course Jonah wouldn't just do that easily. No, Jonah had to be brought to this point. God had a purpose in doing so. And so now now Jonah is talked to by God and spoken to, he's forgotten everything about himself, everything he's been through is at the forefront of his mind, and now he will do what God has commanded him. Now he says, forget about me, I will do what you want me to do, Lord. It's interesting, you know, just in passing, God doesn't call qualified men. He calls men and then he qualifies them. Now I know that this isn't popular in churches today. Whenever I go to a church, they want to see how many letters you have before or after your name and they want to hear what degree you have or what doctorate you have or something along these lines. But isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't do that with his apostles? that he called certain men with all of their faults and then he qualified them into the office. He was the one who trained them. You know, we have this backwards in our churches today, but I'm going off subject. But here Jonah, verse 3, submits to God. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Imagine how offensive this sort of preaching was. It was offensive then and it's very offensive now. It's offensive for me to walk into a church and tell people that the things that they are doing, God hates. That's greatly offensive now, and it was greatly offensive in Jonah's day. You know why? Because these people were doing really well for themselves. They were doing great. Their king was rich. Their city, Nineveh, was doing very well. It was very prosperous. So they thought, we're doing things wonderfully well. So imagine how offensive it was when this dishevelled, horrible-looking man that's just been vomited out of a great fish comes and starts preaching to them. 
They wouldn't have liked it. And I'm sure Jonah wasn't having a great time preaching it. You know, I hear so many preachers today, they want to be liked by everybody. So what they've started doing is watering down the message and being all polite, and unlike me, they never raise their voice. They, they never offend people. They cut their sermon down to about ten minutes or so. I'm sorry, my sermon won't be that short. But they do these things to please people. And one of the reasons why they're doing that is because they don't understand the fear of God, they don't understand that he is holy, and they do not believe that they are accountable to him. Many of them are very well-meaning. They can put far better sermons together than me. But the problem is they're not warning the people. Here Jonah must warn the people. He begins to preach like a madman. I'm sure that's what they thought of him. This man is a lunatic. I remember a word getting back to me from a deacon in a church one day. He said to all of the other deacons at the deacons meeting that that young man will never preach here again. What he said was grossly offensive. God had other plans. I did go back there. But Jonah, looking like a madman, begins to preach on his first day's walk as he enters that city. And it's not good news that he proclaims to them. This is another thing that the church has forgotten today. They want to tell people nice little stories. They want to just tell people things that will tickle their ear. They don't want to tell them that a holy God hates their sin and possibly hates them and will destroy them in hell for eternity. They want to push that aside. They don't want to preach what God has encouraged them and told them to preach. Jonah wasn't going there for a pep talk. No, Jonah was going there to proclaim the word of the living God. He was to tell them that God would destroy them if they did not repent. That 40 days' time they would all be dead. And that the judgment of a holy God would be upon them. It wasn't some nice, polite talk. It was terrible news. Church has forgotten this today and many Christians have forgotten this today. We talk about the good news, but we don't talk about anything else. And people don't even know what the good news is. We don't start with God being a holy God. We don't start with God being a God who must be feared. No, we start with a God who's like you. We start with a God who's your friend, who is your mate, who must forgive you if you turn to him. We don't start with the God of the Bible. We don't start with a God who's holy and just, a God who cannot look upon sin. But that's where Jonah started. That's where the apostles started. It's where all the prophets started. They didn't go to a place and tell them, keep doing what you do, God loves you. You know, I see these people standing out on the street with T-shirts on, Jesus loves you, smile, Jesus loves you. What rubbish. The gospel is repent from your sin and turn to Christ for forgiveness. And so here Jonah begins his walk and he cries out to them that God is going to destroy them for their works. I'm sure it didn't have people wanting to give Jonah high fives. I'm sure they weren't throwing money at Jonah. I'm sure they weren't inviting, the, inviting him back to their house to have lunch with them. He probably wasn't a very funny man to be around. He was probably a difficult man preaching this message. He was a man that was laid down with a great burden because God had called him to do this. 
He'd seen what had happened if he tried to do it his own way and so he dare not do that now. And it's incredible here what takes place. It's incredible here that God grants these people repentance. This is absolutely amazing what takes place here. This is supernatural. It is the only way that this can take place. This is what happens when a gracious God interjects into the lives of men and women and children in the world. These people were headlong into destruction and bound for hell. Their desire was to do things their own way and to prosper according to their own will. But God raises up a standard. God raises up Jonah to proclaim his word and then he graciously grants this nation, this place Nineveh, to turn from their sin. So the people of Nineveh, verse 5, believed God. They believed God and the book The book of the Bible tells us that belief can only be granted by God, that faith is a gift of God, and so is grace. And so here we see these things being graciously brought out in one verse alone. The people believed God. Oh, brethren, how I wish people would believe God today. How effective is Jonah's preaching? One day he's preaching and all of a sudden things have been turned around. One day of him preaching, all of a sudden God turns things around for the place of Nineveh. How incredible. Jonah didn't have a list of letters before and after his name. He hadn't spent years studying in a theological college. No, he just went and preached. I remember meeting with a pastor of a church one day. I told him that I had a desire to preach and that perhaps to preach on the street. And he pulled me aside and he said, oh, John, he said, that doesn't happen anymore. I said, doesn't it? He said, no, no, no. He said, um, that's, that's finished. That was something from years ago. You'll just look like a nutbag. Just don't bother with it. Can you believe that a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ said that to a young man who wanted to preach the gospel? Don't go out to the people and preach these things. You'll look like a nutcase. Just come along to church and do all the things. Go to theological college, tick all the boxes, get a degree that's recognised throughout this nation and throughout the world. You don't want people to think you're a lunatic, do you? Jonah didn't care what they thought. And neither did God because God used his preaching. And God uses preaching today. We must put aside so-called polite Christianity that is not Christianity at all. And we must see that in the New Testament, God uses preaching. He uses the preaching of his word. We must do the same this day. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Does this thing happen today? Some of you might be thinking, surely this is just a thing of the past. This is something that only took place a long time ago. It doesn't happen now. Well, it doesn't happen in the West. 
but it does happen in other parts of our world. Some of you who read the news will have known of the account back in November 2012 of the Ugandan president who repented of his own personal sin before the world and repented of the sins of his nation. He repented of their blasphemy and their idolatry and their witchcraft and he proclaimed this throughout the nation of Uganda and he encouraged men and women and children to do exactly the same thing, that they were all to repent of their sin and that they were to turn to God. It does happen today. It's just that the West just dismisses those things. We just say that they're foolishness. What a lunatic this man must have been. Now I happen to be convicted and convinced that that man was probably far more godlier than me. That he was prepared enough to stand for the truth of the gospel. That he was prepared not to worry about what people thought of him, but to stand up before a nation whom had voted him in, and many probably didn't want him there, but he was prepared to stand up and to repent of his own sin and the sins of his people. Oh, how I wish our own monarch would do this. If you follow the news, the queen of this country, the queen of the Commonwealth, does anything but the sword. She claims to be the head of the Church of England. She doesn't reform the church with its trappings of popery and its superstitions and mystic behaviour. No, she doesn't reform that. Instead, she signs documents to approve homosexual marriage. And then she delivers her Christmas speech every year and smiles politely. While her nation and the Commonwealth refuses to repent and turn to God. It's a horrible indictment on our nation. But here, by God's grace, this doesn't happen in Nineveh. Here, God, we are told, causes a nation from the greatest to the least to repent physically. That is, that there is an outwards response to them. That all of a sudden we see, as we continue on, that even the king, when he hears these things, tears his clothes and responds. We are told in verse 6, Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Oh, how I pray that our queen would do something similar at the preaching of God's word. How I do pray that she would hear the word of God and repent and believe the gospel. Some of you who know church history will have heard it said that the Queen of England feared nothing greater than the prayers of John Knox, the Scottish reformer. Oh, how I wish that God would raise up a man today to do something with our current Queen. How I wish that he would raise up a man today to do something similar with our own Prime Minister. How incredible this is, brethren. Let's not pass over it too quickly. I know many of you want me just to get on with this. But imagine this picture. The king of this great city that is so prosperous is sitting on his throne and when word gets back to him, he leaves his throne and he repents physically. He arises from his throne, he covers himself with sackcloth and he sits in a heap of ashes. 
He's brought low. He sees by God's grace what he is. And it must start with him. It started at the top by God's grace in that community because God knows how important the king is to these people. That God knows that the king is more or less a type of deity whom they all look up to. And so he starts with that king and he pricks him to the heart and he causes him to repent. And then he uses that king and his decree as we continue on, verse 7. He caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Imagine what this would have been like for this great king to be brought down, to utter these words from his mouth to go as a decree throughout his city that he was wicked and that the people were wicked. Remember, they were prospering. They're doing very well for themselves. Here's a lesson in and of itself. Don't ever think that God is blessing you because you have riches. Don't ever think because you own a nice car or a nice house or you have a large bank account that God is blessing you and he must be happy with you. Regardless of what the prosperity preachers tell us, it's nonsense. Because this king was doing very well and this city was doing very well for itself. And what happens? God says, no, you're evil. You are violent. You have sinned against me. And then the king issues the same decree. That this people has been violent and evil and sinned against a holy God. And that they must respond. And isn't it interesting that he even includes the animals in this? Why? Because people were just going to go about their daily lives. They were just going to pretend perhaps that the king had gone a bit crackers and that they could just get on with things. But they couldn't, if there was decree, even affected their livelihoods. They couldn't avoid this. They had to respond physically. And it couldn't be avoided. They couldn't let their animals continue on, and they couldn't enjoy their happy life. No, God even decreed through the king's mouth that even the animals would stop work and that they would wait upon God. How I wish that we would wait upon God today. You know, so much of the church is caught up in doing. We think we've got to be doing something all the time. And we think that that's God's will for us to be doing, doing, doing. Sending missionaries here, sending missionaries there, doing this program, doing that program. I'm not preaching against anybody here. I'm just using some generalizations. But so much of the church is caught up in this. We've got to have something to do every day of the week or every night of the week. And it's false. There is a time when we must be still and wait upon God. And that's what, the, that's, that's what this city had to do. They had to be still and wait and see if God would relent, if God would withhold his judgment upon them. This is something that is an important question for all of us to ask. Verse 9, who can tell if God will turn and relent? 
and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? This is a very important question that all of us must ask ourselves if we call ourselves Christians. Don't ever think that just because you think you've repented that you actually have. Repentance must be granted by God and God alone. Let me read what those great godly men of the 17th century wrote for children to learn, to memorize, so long ago. They wrote this, the catechism, the shorter catechism. The question was, what is repentance unto life? And the answer that was to come back was this, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin, an appreciation of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God, with full purpose to strive after new obedience. Those godly men so long ago knew what repentance was. The men and women and children and even perhaps something of the animals, knew after this decree of the king what true repentance was. How do I know that to be true? Because the Lord Jesus tells us that the men of Nineveh will rise up against the generation where he was in judgment upon them because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and the Lord Jesus says that he is greater than Jonah. That's how I know that the nation of Nineveh truly repented. Because the Lord Jesus tells us. How much more should we repent today, brethren, having God's word in its entirety and knowing the word and words of the Lord Jesus Christ? How much more should we repent? How much more should we as a church, the people, the body of Christ, repent of our wickedness? And how much more should we proclaim to our nation and to the lost that they must also repent? Trust me, you're going to look like a nutcase. You're going to look like a lunatic who goes out on the streets and wears a sandwich board saying, repent, for the end is near. You're going to look like one of those people when you live your faith, when you go into your workplace and you speak the truth of the gospel. I'm not telling you that you should go and offend people just for the sake of offending them. What I'm telling you is that you must be wise, you must pray for wisdom when you are dealing with the lost, and you must, if you call yourself a Christian, live as Christ lived and his apostles and the saints who have gone before us. And you must be prepared to nail your colours to the mast. And you may well look like a lunatic in the eyes of the world, but it shouldn't matter to you. Yes, you may get downheartened about these things, but don't be concerned about it. As we saw that God was working in Jonah, and we saw that he used Jonah and all of the trials and tribulations he put him through for a purpose, so he uses every one of his people today. Don't ever think, I remember hearing in a so-called evangelism class one day, of a man who said this is how he lived his life as a Christian. He sat on the train 
And he saw a person looking across, uh, looking at him from across the aisle, and he said, if I don't tell that person the gospel, they are going to hell. That is false. A person is not going to hell because they haven't heard the gospel. They are going to hell because they are sinners who love their sin and who will not repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. No one is going to hell because they haven't heard the gospel. They are going because they have sinned against an infinitely holy God. This man had a false burden. It was the wrong attitude, the reason why he was going out and telling people the gospel. We must go out and tell people the gospel to glorify our Heavenly Father, not to save people from hell. All that is is pragmatism. All that is is humanism. Because you're concerned that people are going to hell. That is not the gospel. Your concern first and foremost should be the glory of God and you glorifying him with every part of your very being. That should be your concern. Not that people are going to hell, or that may be a long way back from the list of things to do and the reasons to do it. No, first and foremost, it should be to glorify your heavenly Father. Here we see the city of Nineveh repent. Verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Well, there you go, the liberals, God's a liar. God's a liar because he spoke through Jonah, and he said that he would destroy this city, and then he didn't. God's changed to plan B. No, he hasn't. This was always plan A. But God used Jonah. He didn't lie to Jonah in any way, shape or form. It was for his end and for his purpose. And you know what we find not long after this, roughly a 100 years after, and we read that in the book of Nahum, that the people went back to their wicked ways. That after that generation was gone, the people were back sinning against God again and God would destroy them. Here God had a desire to save these people and he did it. Yes, he did relent from casting judgment upon them then, but he hadn't lied to anybody. God granted them gracious repentance and it was done. Not one will be lost, brethren. Not one person will be lost to hell by mistake. The Word of God tells us that the Lord Jesus said that out of all the Father had given him, he had lost none, and he will not lose one. When he hung on that Roman cross, he cried out, It is finished, and it is and it was. Not one will be lost. As I said last week, nobody is getting into heaven by the skin of their teeth and nobody is accidentally going to hell. God has an exact number that is only known to him. It's not 144,000, regardless of what any crackpot tells you. No, he has an exact number of people who will be in heaven. Not one will be lost, regardless of our failings. Regardless of how we do not tell people the gospel, or we do tell people the gospel, not one will be lost. 
God's purpose will not fail. The Ninevites repented because God granted them repentance. It could not fail. Jonah's preaching could not fail, just as anybody who preaches the word of God today, and it is truthful, God's word will not return to him void. It will accomplish everything that he wants it to accomplish. If you're sitting here today and you're just wishing it would stop, you hate my voice, you don't like the look of me, and you just want it all to be over, it will be very shortly, but even that is predestined by God. Even your hatred of the preacher this morning is predestined by a holy God who has numbered the hairs on your head and who knows everything. Don't think it's by accident if you haven't heard this sermon this morning. It's because God decreed it. And if you have, good, and you must do what God commands you to do. And he commands you this day to repent and to believe the gospel again. Just like the preacher's been repeating himself week in, week out, you must repent. There's salvation in no other, said the Lord Jesus Christ. And repentance is a gift of God. Belief and faith are tied in with that gift. And repentance is ongoing. Don't just think perhaps you went to a service one day and some person, well-meaning, all but unbiblical, called you to the front and asked you to pray a prayer and repent and believe the gospel or asked you to ask Jesus into their heart, as well-meaning as they were, is not biblical. But even that false repentance may be granted by God. That it is only him who can bring true repentance and it is not a one-off event. It is something that is ongoing. As this sinner stands here before you, I have to repent daily and sometimes hourly. And that is the Christian life, one of constant repentance. And the Christian life is one of God pouring his grace out time and time and time again. Why? Because we're thick? Well, I am. But it's also because of this word and this action sanctification. That is, that the Christian is to be becoming more holy day in, day out. We are to becoming more like Christ. Some days it's two steps forwards and three steps back. But even in that, God is working. God is working his purpose and he will deliver you And you will look exactly like his glorious son on that wonderful day. You will not avoid it if you are a child of God. And if you are not a child of God by his grace this day, you will not avoid the coming judgment and you will not avoid hell. There is salvation in no other. It is in Christ and Christ alone. How were the Ninevites saved? They were saved by the grace of God and through Christ alone. They were saved by his work that was to come. And we are saved by his works from the past. It is all of grace, as Jonah declared, salvation is of the Lord. And we must declare the same this day. Not salvations of the preacher, salvations not of the prayer, salvation is of the Lord. 
Repentance and belief must be granted by God and God alone, regardless of what any well-meaning person may tell you. Salvation is of God and through Christ. Oh, brethren, how I pray that our nation would repent. How I pray that the church, the visual church, would repent of their wickedness that they have brought in. The wickedness that has brought down the body of Christ, that visual body that is in a mess and in tatters throughout the world. How I do pray that the leaders would repent again, that there would be a cleansing as there was in Nineveh. Oh, brethren, we must pray for this and we must pray that the Lord would repent from sifting us and the judgment would not begin in the church. How we must pray that the Lord would relent how he did with Nineveh and how we must pray that the Lord would relent with us starting here today. Let us pray. Almighty God, how we do praise you that you are the God of all grace. Without your grace, nothing can be achieved. We cannot in and of ourselves believe the gospel that we cannot in and of ourselves turn to you. How we do praise you for those of us whom you have wrought this supernatural work in. But Lord, how we do pray that you would continue this work. Even this day we do pray for our nation, we beseech you that you would draw sinners to repentance, that you would cause our leaders to repent of their wickedness, of their turning from you, of their blatant disregard for your laws and how we do pray that they would uphold the truths of your word. Well, Father, we do pray that this day you would start with every hearer here, starting with the preacher, I do pray. Lord, I repent of my sin and my wickedness before you this day and before this congregation. I acknowledge that without your grace, I am nothing but a wretch on his way to hell. And I do pray for this congregation that they would hear your word, that they by your grace would turn from their wickedness. And I do pray that we would be sanctified by the Holy Spirit again, that we would be made more into Christ's glorious image this day. Forgive us if we leave this place and look to the world again. But Lord, draw us to look upon Christ in and through his word and see the Lamb of God in all of his fullness and splendor seated on his throne and to cry out for him for salvation and for forgiveness and to glorify him alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.